Okay, so to this point, you have covered the anatomy and physiology of the skin and dermatologic terminology. You have reviewed general pathologic conditions like pressure injuries, musculoskeletal issues, issues affecting self-care that might impact on lower extremity foot and nail health. You have spent a lot of time on pathologic conditions unique to the lower extremity, like lower extremity arterial disease, lower extremity venous disease, lymphedema, lower extremity neuropathic disease, thermal injuries, malignancies, infectious processes. You've gone through all of that. And you've spent in-depth time on the process of wound healing, guidelines for wound assessment, and guidelines for wound management. So now we are going to focus our attention specifically on the foot and the nail. We're going to talk about anatomic considerations unique to the foot. We're going to talk about anatomy of the nail and the nail bed. We're going to then move into specific pathologies that might affect the foot, might affect the nail, and that would affect your role as a foot and nail nurse. So here we go. We're going to describe in this class, we're going to focus on the anatomy and physiology of the nail bed and implications for managing nail pathology. So first of all, I know you have an appreciation for the importance of feet because you picked this course. To a large extent, feet get ignored. Just talk to podiatrists and they will tell you nobody wants to talk about feet. But you know what? Feet are really impressive. They truly are a mechanical marvel. From watching us just go through a day and you think of all of the ways that your feet support you throughout the day, whether it's putting up with whatever awful footwear you subject them to, we'll talk about that, or all of the things we ask them to do. So we ask them to walk. Sometimes we ask them to run. Sometimes we ask them to jump. If we're an athlete, we ask them to do all of these things in a myriad of positions. And you know what? Most of the time, they're able to perform for us. They can sustain enormous pressure, and they exhibit an amazing degree of support plus flexibility. And when you think about the fact that in each foot you have 26 bones, most of those bones are relatively small. So how do you get so much structural support from those small little bones? And it's the combination of the bones plus the tightly woven connective tissue that gives our feet the ability to bear so much weight, so much force, and still maintain flexibility. So let's hear it for feet, right? So let's go back to bones. 26 bones in each foot. That's a lot of bones. And as we'll mention in a minute, it helps to explain why osteomyelitis 
is a potential complication of any foot wound. But I want you to look at the specific bones. You need to know what these terms mean. So in the forefoot, you have phalanges and metatarsals. The phalanges are your toe bones. The metatarsals are your foot bones. So look carefully at this slide. Be sure you're very clear on where your phalanges are, where your metatarsals are. Now, most of you have probably taken care of patients who required a transmetatarsal amputation because they ended up with a severe uh, wound with infection involving the forefoot. And so they ended up essentially removing the distal half of the foot, transmetatarsal amputation. You also need to know the term ray. So ray refers to the combination of a phalange plus its metatarsal. And occasionally you'll have patients who require ray amputations. So you might come in and see that the patient has four toes instead of five, and they've had a ray amputation, probably because of necrosis involving a single toe. So make sure you're clear on phalanges Make sure you're clear on metatarsals. Make sure you know the difference between a ray amputation and a transmetatarsal amputation. Now in the midfoot, the major bones are the cuneiforms, the navicular, and the cuboid. Um, those are mid-sized bones. And then the hind foot is where you have large bones, the talus and the calcaneus. And of course, we're most familiar with the calcaneus, the heel bone. So the things you're most likely to be asked are about the phalanges, the metatarsals, the talus, the calcaneus. They don't typically ask you specifically for midfoot bones, but they could. So it wouldn't be a bad thing to just remember those as well. And then the joints. So you have on the toes, you have your proximal and distal interphalangeal joints, your pip and dip joints. So you think, okay, phalanges are the toe board, are the toe bone, sorry. So your distal interphalangeal joints are gonna be the ones closest to the end of the toes. Your proximal interphalangeal joints are gonna be the ones closest to the foot. So be sure you're clear on those terms. Um, of course, you have multiple tendons and ligaments. And as you know, those are critical connective tissue structures. Tendons attach muscles to bones. Ligaments attach bones to bones. Now, we've already mentioned the fact that any foot wound is associated with significant risk for osteomyelitis because you have lots of bones you have minimal soft tissue, so you're always alert to any indication that you might be dealing with a wound complicated by osteomyelitis. What are the usual indicators? First of all, if you can see bone or touch bone in wounds where bone is visible or palpable, over 90% of those individuals have osteo. Also, if you have a non-healing tunnel, 
So maybe the wound started out four by two by three, and then it was two by one by three, and now it's 0 0.3 by 0 0.3 by three. Why has the wound closed down and the tunnel persisted? Many times because there's infected bone at the base of the tunnel. But I would say the most common presentation is the last one, and I've missed this many times. And that is when you have a patient who has a non-healing foot wound, and there's no obvious reason. Maybe it's a plantar surface wound, and you have offloaded the wound. You've made sure the patient got appropriate nutritional support, glycemic control, all of those things. You've checked perfusion, perfusion is good. You have managed the wound appropriately and yet it's not healing. Then we need to think about osteomyelitis. That's the most common reason for a non-healing wound when there's adequate perfusion, glycemic control, etc. Why does osteom matter so much? Because it prevents durable healing. We know that in patients who have an infected bone at the base of the wound, even if it closes over at the surface, it will open back up. So critical for us to identify and manage osteomyelitis. Now, as a wound care nurse, as a foot and nail care nurse, what are my responsibilities? To recognize that osteo is a potential complication in this case, to refer the patient for imaging or bone biopsy, and then to involve orthopedics and possibly infectious diseases for management, which typically involves long-term antibiotics and possibly hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Now, what musculoskeletal changes do we commonly see with aging? Well, it's common to see reduced range of motion. We've talked about reduction in the amount of cartilage, increased numbers of people with arthritis, the resultant stiffness. So reduced range of motion, increased stiffness, increased pain, that's very common. Also very common to see changes in the width and the length of the foot. So a lot of people will tell you that they don't wear the same shoe size they wore in their 20s and 30s, that the shoe size they wear now is larger. So that's very common. That's because of relaxation of the ligaments. And all of these changes do negatively impact gait and balance. So as we assess our clients, one of the things we're watching for is their ability to walk independently, their balance, whether or not they might need an assistive device, and we might need to refer them to physical therapy for further assessment. Okay, moving on from bones to muscles and nerves, we have four layers of muscles over the bottom of the foot, which makes sense when you think about everything that feet have to do. So we need every layer of muscle. Um, obviously, normal muscle function is critical to normal range of motion, to normal foot strength, to maintaining normal contours. We don't always think about that, but 
atrophy of the muscles, weakness of the muscles is going to change foot contours that in turn will change weight bearing. If you are both a wound care nurse and a foot and nail nurse, you want to be very aware that muscles are extremely close to the surface in the foot because we have very limited subcutaneous tissue. So that means if you do have a wound that requires debridement, you have to be very alert and very careful because you do not want to damage viable muscle. And the nerves. So you've heard a lot about the importance of intact nerves and intact nerve function in the class on lower extremity neuropathic disease. You know that the feet have multiple nerve pathways and that normal function of those pathways is critical to sensory function, to normal muscle function, and to autonomic function. Autonomic um, nerves affect sweat glands and also affect the size of the arterial vessels. So the impact of neuropathy, just a quick review because you've gone over this in detail. So you know that if there's damage to the sensory nerves, you lose protective sensation you're at very high risk for painless, unrecognized trauma that turns into a chronic wound, and you're also at risk for paresthesias. If you have motor neuropathy, remember that that alters, nerve, alters muscle function, which in turn alters the contours of the foot, which alters weight bearing. So you're going to see deformities. You might see hammer toes, you might see claw toes, you might see mallet toes, we're going to talk about all of those. You might see abnormally prominent metatarsal heads. You might see altered gait. If you end up with foot deformities and or altered gait, by definition, you're going to have alteration in weight bearing and in pressure points. And that is going to increase that individual's risk for ulceration. And then if you have damage to the autonomic nerves, if you have autonomic neuropathy, it's going to affect sweat glands, which in turn affects hydration of the tissues. And you're going to have damage to the nerves that control the size of the arteries to the foot. So what do we see clinically? We might see dry, cracked feet. We might see chronically wet feet with fissures. We might see Charcot foot. And remember with Charcot foot, what happens is you get damage to the autonomic nerves that normally cause constriction of the arterial vessels. As a result, you get chronic vasodilation that causes demineralization of the bones and osteopenia so that the bones become more fragile. And then just stepping incorrectly can cause a fracture. If that fracture is unrecognized because of coexisting sensory neuropathy, you end up with chronic inflammation, then you end up with additional fractures and eventually 
you end up with a major midfoot deformity. Um, we typically call it a rocker bottom foot where the arch collapses. And then it's very common for them to develop ulcerations over that rocker bottom foot and the end result can be amputation. So quickly reviewing um, vascular anatomy and function. So looking at arteries, which obviously are critical to maintenance of tissue viability. The tibial artery is the primary artery that supplies the foot. And you can see several diagrams there. So the dorsalis pedis and posterior tibialis come off the tibial artery. The dorsalis pedis runs along the dorsal surface of the foot. The posterior tib runs along the medial ankle. And of course, you've covered this previously, and you know those are the two pulse points we routinely check for. And we also check for any evidence of diminished perfusion of trophic changes to the skin and soft tissue. So when we're doing our assessment, we're checking the skin to see does it look abnormally thin or does it seem normal? Are there um, altered patterns of hair growth? Like does the patient have hair loss where they used to have abundant hair growth? That's an indication of chronic ischemia. Is there dependent rubor, elevational pallor, indicative of chronic ischemia? What is the caliber of the pulse? What is the capillary refill? Should be three seconds or less. What is the ABI? So anytime there's any indication of arterial disease, anytime we're planning to use compression therapy for venous disease, we have to get an ABI. And just as a reminder, normal findings 0 0.9 to 1.3. Now, you're very clear on the impact of diminished perfusion, the impact of arterial insufficiency. First of all, that patient is at much greater risk for ulceration because the tissues are compromised at baseline. So you might get spontaneous necrosis of the toe because of inadequate perfusion. And more commonly, we see impaired healing. So how many times have you had a patient or a client who comes in, they have a wound on the anterior surface of the leg. How did you get this? I bumped into my workbench. I bumped into the dishwasher. And it never healed. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yes, because it takes blood flow and oxygen to heal a wound. So. Arterial insufficiency, very significant finding. Always, always we refer that patient for vascular follow-up and we use extreme caution in providing uh, foot and nail care. What about the veins? Well, as you recall from your class on lower extremity venous disease, you have superficial veins, deep veins, and perforator veins. So the superficial veins are the saphenous veins, so you see those in light blue, and they drain the skin and soft tissues. 
The deep veins are the perineal and tibial veins, and they are located right next to the muscles in the calf. So that every time the calf muscle contracts, it milks the deep veins and sends the blood back to the heart. And then the perforator veins are the little veins that connect the superficial system and the deep system. So if you remember um, from your study of venous disease, normal function is that every time I take a step, I engage the calf muscle. It milks the deep veins, sends the blood back to the heart, and that empties the deep veins, then they refill from the superficial system. And you have one-way valves to prevent backflow of blood. So it's a one-way path from the superficial system through the perforator veins to the deep veins back to the heart. With chronic venous insufficiency, as you remember, what happens is you have valve failure, and so then you have two-way flow of blood, so some blood goes back to the heart and some blood goes back to the superficial system. Then you get varicosities, then you get skin and soft tissue changes, and you get increased risk of ulceration and delayed healing. Now, most of us have not spent as much time studying the lymphatic system as we have spent studying the arterial and venous system. But of course, you have reviewed the class on lymphedema. And you remember that the lymphatic vessels, which you see on this slide, um, transport protein-rich fluid back to the veins. So they're your scavenger system. They pick up anything that the venous system missed and help to prevent edema. Now, what happens with lymphedema is something goes wrong with function of the lymphatic system. And as a result, that protein-rich fluid gets trapped out in the tissues. It causes an inflammatory response, which eventually produces tissue fibrosis. Now, how do we, as foot and nail nurses, how do we know our patient has lymphedema? How would we differentiate between lymphedema and venous edema? Venous edema causes swelling from ankle to knee. Lymphedema causes swelling from toes to groin. So it's much more extensive. An early sign of lymphedema is what they call a positive stimmer sign. And in case you've forgotten what that is, you should be able to pinch tissue at the base of the second or third toe. If you cannot pinch the tissue at the base of the second or third toe, that is considered to be a positive stimmer sign. It means you have abnormal fluid collection in that soft tissue. Another huge difference between lymphedema and venous edema, venous edema responds very well to elevation and to standard compression therapy because what is venous edema? It's water and electrolytes. So responds well to elevation, responds well to compression. But lymphedema is not water-based, it's protein-based, and proteins are large molecules 
and it's very hard to get those big molecules out of the tissue back into the bloodstream. So with later stages of lymphedema, elevation essentially has no effect and compression has very little effect. Also with lymphedema, you start to see skin and soft tissue changes, which you don't typically see with venous edema. So you start seeing a cobblestoning effect and massive increase in the size of the limb. So we've talked about different levels of lymphedema. Typically it's divided into stage one, stage two, stage three. Stage one is where you wanna catch it. So it's involving the entire limb. You have edema from the toes to the groin, but at this point, it is responsive to elevation and compression. So you can manage it with pretty much standard therapy. With stage two, you've progressed to the point that the edema is not reversible just with edema, I mean, just with elevation and compression. There's marked increase in the size of the limb, but at this point, you don't have a lot of soft tissue changes. Stage three is where you get a lot of skin and soft tissue changes. The tissue becomes very hard to the touch. You have that cobblestoning effect. Now, you can see that lymphedema would have a major impact. First of all, you've got all this edema, so that impacts on tissue health and potential for healing of any wound. The fact that the lymphatic fluid is protein-rich means it's a great um, support system for bacteria, so patients with lymphedema, much higher risk for infection, and very difficult to get wounds to heal. Here's the other thing that we need to remember about lymphedema. Much more difficult to manage because we're dealing with protein-rich fluid trapped out in the tissues, and it involves the entire extremity from toes to groin. Doesn't respond to the standard therapies that we as wound care nurses or as foot and nail nurses are more comfortable with, elevation and compression requires complex therapy, manual lymphatic drainage, high level compression, and that's typically provided by an occupational therapist, lymphedema therapist, or physical therapist. So we've got to get these patients to a lymphedema treatment center. Okay, now, Quickly reviewing skin and soft tissue, you know that the skin is a critical structure. It provides a barrier to invasion either from bacteria um, or irritants, and it also provides a barrier to fluid loss. So it maintains hydration, helps prevent infection. One thing to be aware of is that the skin over the soles of the feet is thicker than the skin anywhere else on the body. So everywhere else on the body, maximum thickness of epidermis dermis is usually 0.2 centimeters, two millimeters. But on the soles of the feet, it can be thicker, it can be 0.3. Remember the sub-Q tissue is critical in that it provides padding over bony prominences and reduces your risk of pressure and shear injury. 
Remember the muscle is the layer with the highest metabolic rate and also the layer located right next to bone. So it is the layer at greatest risk for pressure injury. That's where most pressure injuries begin. And then you have the bone. Now looking specifically at the skin on the feet, um, very prone to under and over hydration. Um, also, also prone to damage from repetitive friction and shear, which presents as callus formation. Anytime you see callus formation, it tells you that area is being exposed to repetitive friction and shear and is at risk for ulceration. Now feel the plantar surface of your feet. Feel over the heel, feel over the metatarsal heads, and feel your toe pads. And what you're gonna feel is fat pads. Every weight-bearing aspect of the foot. So when you look at the normal gait cycle, it's heel strike, then you roll up over the met heads and you toe off. And all of those bony prominences are protected by fat pads. The bad thing is that fat pads thin with aging. So that means that the elderly are higher risk for ulceration over the plantar surface. So we're very alert to callus formation. And we know that whenever we see callus formation, it tells us that area is being subjected to abnormal friction and shear, that we need to protect that area with specialized insoles. So essentially when our fat pads fail, we need to step in with synthetic fat pads, AKA insoles. Okay, so keeping the skin healthy, of course, we're gonna clean with soap and water. We hope people will clean with soap and water. Rinse, and then dry thoroughly, especially between the toes. Trapped moisture between the toes results in cracking, fissures, and painful wounds. So critical to dry well between the toes. But it's very hard for a lot of people to get down to their toes to dry well. So you want to teach them to take a long towel and slide it between the toes and go back and forth like dental floss. We want to teach people to routinely use emollients and humectants to keep their skin soft and supple. What's the difference? Emollients essentially are lipids. There are things like ceramides, like you see in CeraVe, all of your uh, ceramide-based lotions, dimethicone, um, lanolin, all of those are moisturizers. They replace lost lipids between the skin cells and help to keep the skin soft and supple. Now, humectants are intended for extremely dry skin. They're your urea-based products like lachydrin um, that literally attracts water 
and holds it in that skin layer. So very, very dry skin, you need humectants, either um, urea-based products or petrolatum products. Some people even use um, shortening, which um, attracts and traps moisture. So anything to keep the skin soft and supple. Um, many products on the market are a combination of emollients and humectants, a lot of things that are marketed for foot care. We want to teach patients to use pumice or an emery board to manage callus, and the best time to use it is right after a shower or a bath. And then for patients with extremely dry, scaly feet, we want to talk to them about brief vinegar water soaks. So the ratio should be one part vinegar to three parts water, just white household vinegar, one part vinegar, three parts water. Check the temperature of the water. It should be tepid or warm. Limit soak time to about 10 to 15 minutes. Then rinse and dry thoroughly, especially between the toes. Then apply your humectant or your um, emollient-humectant combination, but not between the toes. Okay, the last thing we want to cover is structures that are unique to the nails themselves. So we're going to talk about the nail plate, also known as the toenail, the nail bed, the nail matrix, the hyponychium, the nail folds, the nail grooves, and the free nail border. And all of these are terms that you need to know and be very familiar with because they will show up on the certification exam and they will not be defined. Okay, so the nail plate and the toenail are the same thing. And the toenails are composed of three overlapping layers of keratinized cells. So they're modified skin, essentially. Your nails are uh, modified skin. You've got a thin outer layer, also known as the dorsal layer. You've got a thick middle layer. And then the inner layer is continuous with and derived from the nail bed. We'll talk about the nail bed in just a minute. Now, the components of the toenails, the nail plates, are amino acids, inorganic elements, and water. And normally your nails are about 10 to 30 percent water. Now, one question has been, do we even need toenails? What are they there for? Well, they're there to protect the underlying nail bed from friction and pressure. And if you've ever lost a toenail, you know how sensitive that nail bed is. So yes, we do need toenails. You wanna be aware of the effects of under and over hydration on nail status. So if your nails are under hydrated, they become very brittle. If they're overhydrated, they become very soft where they peel easily, split readily. 
So normal hydration is important, which means you need adequate fluid intake and appropriate hygienic care. Now, what about the nail bed? What's the difference in the nail bed and the nail plate? The nail bed is the skin that serves as a support surface for the nail plate, for the toenail. It is made of epithelium. It interlocks with the nail plate. So you think how tightly adherent your toenail is to the underlying skin. So normally, nail bed, nail plate locked down together, and you can't just lift the toenail off. It's why that's a form of torture. It hurts if your nail gets pulled away from the underlying nail bed. So nail bed is skin. The nail plate is modified skin. It's those three layers of keratinized epithelial cells. The nail matrix is the reproductive area of the nail bed. So it's the area underlying the nail plate that supports nail plate production. And it extends from an area about eight millimeters proximal to the cuticle to the distal end of the lunula. And the lunula is that crescent-shaped area that you can see at the base of the nail plate. So the reproductive area extends from the edge of the lunula to 8 millimeters proximal to the cuticle. And the nail bed begins where the nail matrix ends, so they run right together. Now, the nail folds and nail grooves, that's just the folds of skin and soft tissue adjacent to the nail plates. You can talk about the proximal um, nail fold, the lateral nail folds. But pay attention to the proximal nail fold. So the proximal nail fold is continuous with the cuticle. The cuticle seals and protects the nail bed. And it's really important and prevention of infection. So the cuticle is actually composed of dry cells that are shed by the proximal nail fold. You wanna maintain intact cuticle. We try to avoid cutting the cuticle because any tear to the cuticle, any disruption in its continuity allows bacterial invasion and infection. So we try to be very careful with cuticles, and that's why we don't want people biting their nails, biting their cuticles. Free border and hyponychium. You're going to hear a lot um, of reference to the free nail border, and that in turn references the hyponychium. So the free nail border is the top edge of the nail plate and the portion of the nail that extends past the nail bed, okay? So you know the nail bed interlocks with the nail plate. But at the end of the nail bed, the portion of the nail that extends past that is the free nail, the nail that you can safely trim, safely cut, okay? The hyponychium is the border between the distal nail plate and the underlying nail bed. Sometimes people call this the quick. 
And if you push back on your nail pad, I mean, I'm sorry, on your finger pad, push back on the finger pad to look at the junction between the free nail and the attached nail, you'll see that dark pink rim. That's the hyponychium. So the hyponychium is the distal end of the nail plate where the nail is attached. And the hyponychium signals the beginning of the free nail. So you want to be very clear about free nail and hyponychium. And we've already said you always want to identify the free border before you start to trim the nails. So you can see all of the diagrams there. And on the bottom picture, of course, the free nail is the part that looks white. How fast do nails grow? Patients ask us this all the time. How long is it going to take for my nail to grow back? Um, I dropped something on my toe. My toenail came off. It's growing back so slowly. How long is it going to take? So you can see fingernails grow back at the rate of six months. So in general, you can replace a fingernail in six months. Toenails take 12 to 18 months, so it takes a long time to replace a toenail. And you can see the factors that affect the rate of nail growth. Psoriasis, your nails grow faster. You're producing skin cells at an accelerated rate. If you have arterial insufficiency, it slows the rate of nail growth because you have to have blood flow to make new cells. Warm temperatures increase the rate of nail growth, so I guess we grow nails faster down south than they do up north because cold temperatures reduce the rate of growth. So I know that's a lot, but a lot of it was just review because we reviewed all of the critical structures of the foot and the nail. Um, and here you see a quick review again, 26 bones, so increased risk for osteomyelitis, nerves, if you have damage to the nerves, you're going to end up with neuropathy, so be sure you're very clear on sensory neuropathy, motor neuropathy, autonomic neuropathy. Make sure you're clear on the impact of lower extremity arterial disease, venous disease, lymphedema, and then make sure you're very clear on all of the structures and the terminology related to the nails the underlying nail bed, and the junction between the attached nail and the free nail border. Okay, thank you.